I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Bell. Hey guys, you're very welcome to episode two of The Delve with Mike Sheridan, brought to you by our buddies, our pals, our compadres at Spotlight Oral Care. Use the code DELVE25 to get 25% off at checkout. Delighted to be associated with such a cool brand this season. I know I mentioned it in the last episode, but still, we're really delighted to have their support and to be able to have the resources to uh, do the show properly. So, my second guest, guest number two, is in a completely different direction than... Bill Burr, um, a hugely fascinating human being. So my second guest is Anthony Scaramucci, who was the director of communications for the White House for a solid 11 days. It's like 11 days given the Trump administration and the amount of people who have come and gone there. That's a win. And I think think Anthony kind of thinks that as well. Um, But post-White House, Scaramucci became, or the mooch, people kind of shout that at him from the audience in Colbert and stuff became very much a household name, became globally known. So that's what I found really fascinating, that kind of, not psychology, but a, a little bit, I guess, of going from, like, I mean, he's a finance guy, he's written books, he was on TV, but going from relatively well-known in that New York financial scene, investment scene, to global fame, to everybody knowing who the Mooch is, because it was on the news constantly when he left the administration, as, I, as is the way with Donald Trump and people seem to leave his administrations, it doesn't go well. So we start the conversation by talking about General Kelly, who Anthony had literally just spoken to a couple of days beforehand and that had broken a whole bunch of news as well. It was the first interview uh, that General John Kelly did, who was Donald Trump's chief of staff. So it's a unique, fascinating insight into a mental situation that I think is going to reverberate throughout history, that is going to be talked about in history books. So I really enjoyed the conversation with Anthony. I really appreciated his time and I hope you do too. Anthony, how are you? Yeah. First of all, how's how's the family? How's everything in New York? Yeah, everything's okay. I mean, listen, I mean, we got blasted here in New York. So, uh, you know, every, everything's okay. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, there's, I don't, I don't think you could uh, meet a person in my industry that doesn't know somebody that's passed from the virus, you know. But New York was one of those cities as well that it very much went global what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And it sounded pretty horrific. So everybody's kind of been touched by it. I know somebody who's been touched by the virus. Well, I mean, if you do the math, there were 21,000 people that died. So if you just think about the magnitude of that, that was, uh, you had probably 3,000 people die in 9-11. So that was about seven 9-11s for New York. Oh, it's, it's horrific stuff. Yeah. Lord. But everybody, yeah. everybody around is okay. My family seems to be doing well, thank God. You know, yeah. we're 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 in good shape. My older brother is good. You know, he's got some secondary health issues, and my parents, who are in their mid eighties, also have secondary health issues. They're doing well. So, okay. Well, I really enjoyed your conversation with with General Kelly last Friday. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah, I thought that went well. No, I you know he's a uh, he's a very formal guy. But he's a very patriotic guy. He's a very uh, sincere guy. So, um, you, and I think I think him and I make strange bedfellows in the sense that he fired my ass from the White House. But here we are as friends in solidarity on an issue that's obviously very serious for the world and for uh, for our country. You know. 
So are you are you guys friends? And are you guys kind of were you because you had planned that interview before? Um, I mean, this this is the thing. We're recording this on June 9th and this will yeah. go out next week. But the news cycle yeah. changes at such a pace nowadays. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's really, really frightening. But yeah, you guys no, had, had that interview planned. Yes. Yeah, so I he has come to my conference uh, known as the SALT conference. He spoke in Las Vegas. He also he also spoke for us in Abu Dhabi. And uh, he's a great great guy and uh, obviously an American patriot. He lost his son in Iraq as a U.S. Marine. So he's a four-star general, but he's also a gold star family member. And, uh, you know, listen, I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, and our relationship didn't start out great because my first time meeting him, he was firing me. So, I mean, it was a little rough. But uh, I think that says a lot about him, frankly, you know, that we were able to build a relationship after that. But listen, I mean, you know, it would be hard to understand unless you have a political agenda that's related to your power preservation, supporting Donald Trump at this moment in time, if you're a thinking person. So, I mean, that's my thought about it. And I I get why he has supporters still. I understand the ardent support. But that's mostly a result of the culture war and not a result of their sound thinking, you know. I want to get into that stuff because this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because you have such a unique insight. But before we do, from a purely personal perspective, you were very well known in the world of finance in New York and in the US. But when when you took over in the White House as a comms director in the White House, you you became not just a national household name, you became a global household name. Like while I'm sitting here in Dublin, you know, in Ireland watching you on Colbert, what was that experience like for you personally, just to be all of a sudden, every camera, every, you know, every oh, kind of flashing light? I mean, I mean, I mean it's, 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 it's a little bit surreal. You know, look, I grew up in a blue collar family. Uh, my dad was a crane operator. He was in a union. He did 42 years at the same company. My mom is a housewife. So my dad was making good enough wages to put us in the middle class. Uh, but you know, there was no college educated people in the family. So my brother and I were the first two people to go to college. So my odyssey from my hometown and how I grew up to Tufts, to Harvard law school, to Goldman Sachs, uh, it's been a series of rites of passage, you know, and it's been a series of, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, adjusting to, corporate America, adjusting to business America, and then adjusting to political America. You know, one of, one of the things that uh, I did, rightly or wrongly, when I joined Goldman Sachs, I didn't have a big, broad network, Michael. So I went and wrote my first fundraising check to Rudolph Giuliani. He was running for mayor. I was 25. It was 1989. And I wrote him a $250 check, and I went to the fundraiser. Why did I do that? I thought I'd meet rich people there. I thought I would meet people. I could build a network. I could find clients there. And so that's what brought me to doing that, you you know, and then I got more and more involved in the fundraising, more and more involved in that political process, which led to a bevy of people that I was able to meet. And so as I was building my businesses and growing them, I, I left Goldman at age 32, started my first company sold it by age 37, uh, and then left Lehman Brothers, who eventually bought my company at age 41 to start Skybridge. 
it was always somehow connected into politics because that's how I really got into the circle of influence in order to start my businesses. So, so to go from being a political fundraiser into the spotlight, you know, that was a little, that was a little eerie. But, you know, I had hosted a television show. I had hosted Wall Street Week for the Fox Business Network. I had been a uh, CNBC contributor. So I had some media training and some media experience. Obviously, I did the press conference uh, in the White House. Uh, I was only there for 11 days, but I flew Air Force One three times, and I I, I did a press conference in the White House. Um, and, you know, for me, it was surreal in some ways, but in other ways, oddly, I felt very comfortable because, you know, if you and I got to know each other, you'd find that I'm uh, pretty comfortable in my own skin. Uh, warts and all, I'm happy to address my shortcomings. I'm happy to address things I think I'm doing reasonably well at. I, I don't have that uh, insecurity that people like Donald Trump have, where they're trying to mask over everything and pretend something is true when it isn't, that sort of thing, you know. So how do you think history is going to look at, uh, and this is quite a broad question, I appreciate that, just the last couple of years in particular in that administration, because it feels like, and again, I prefix everything I say here because I'll get shit, on, I'll get shit in the comments, as you, as, you, as you tend to do. I'm Irish, obviously, I'm not mm-hmm. American. Um, but yeah, I don't, just, well, I mean, let me, let, me give you, let me give you a piece of advice. Kellyanne Conway gave me this advice. Uh, when I joined the White House, uh, uh, before I went up, to meet with the press. I was upstairs in the West Wing in her office. And then you go downstairs to the lower press where the uh, the press room is. It's actually on top of the old White House swimming pool. But when I was in her office, she took my phones and she said, here, give me your phones. And she shut off my notifications. And so I have practiced, and I mean religiously practiced, not looking at the comments. Because my attitude is, why look at the comments? There's miscreants, haters, bullies, uh, people that are uh, in their basement. You know, one of the things that the social media enterprises have done is we turned the village idiot that's living in their mother's basement uh, into the global idiot, you know, because they have this platform now in social media. And so why let them infect your brain or your chemistry? And, uh, and the adage that my grandmother once said, I really try to live by, what other people think of you is none of your business. They just go live your life, you know? And I think it's a big lesson for people that watch you, watch your podcast. Uh, it's hard to do. I, I'm not trying to say this in a sanctimonious way. Sure, have I checked them from time to time? Sure. Uh, do I wish I didn't? Absolutely. Uh, but if you get in the habit of not doing it, uh, what happens is uh, your mental state goes uh, immeasurably positive. So. Who cares what they say in the comments? So go ahead, say what the hell you're going to say. Who cares? I was just going to say, there's, it seems like there was no adults left in the room, you know, in, in that White House administration. But you, you mentioned Kellyanne Conway there. She's uh, obviously good at what she does. I don't think anybody can take that away from her, but it's almost worse. That's one of the criticisms that you will hear from her. So she, obviously mm-hmm. her husband is, is very much against Trump. Um, is it, do you, how do you feel about that? How do you think, you know, Kellyanne Conway, who seems to know better, is is still in that White House. She's still spinning. She's still spinning that yarn. Well, that, you know, she'll have, to, she'll, she'll have to answer for that. At some point, she'll have to make amends for maybe she's, you know, a very strong Trump acolyte. I think her husband feels that uh, Donald Trump is a cult-like, demagogic-like figure. Uh, 
you know, I think what Trump has done is very upsetting to normal people. Uh, you know, you look at what he's doing, you look at his attitude, you look at the bullying, you look at his lack of kindness, the coarseness of the language, uh, the ferocity of the of the uh, uh, demeaning nature of his personality, and you're like, okay, enough is enough already. You know, uh, when I was working for him, what you do is you try to cling to. Uh, you know, elements about his policies that you may like. Uh, and so what you're doing is you're constantly equivocating. Well, he said X, Y, Z, that's morally deranged, but he's going to do Z, Y, X. So you try to stay with him. It's like this uh, series and pattern of cognitive dissonance. And then at some point, you have to either say to yourself, okay, I'm all in. I'm now over the waterfall with this guy naked in the barrel. Or, hey, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't disavow my personal integrity to say and or do or accept what this guy is doing. And so uh, whether it's Mitt Romney, myself, you know, Mitt, Mitt, everybody goes through the same curve. I wrote about this in the Washington Post. It's called the Trump employment syndrome. You start out hating the son of a bitch. He, he then, you know, it looks like he's going to win the election. You're a Republican. So you're trying to adapt yourself to liking him. And then you end up, holy shit, you know, I was wrong about this guy. I was right in the beginning. And you start disliking him again. And so everybody goes through that. General Kelly, you saw that interview. General Kelly said last week that, well, you know, most people have a descending relationship with him. Wherever it starts, it starts to descend. So in Kellyanne Conway's case, I can't, you know, I like her. Uh, she's entitled to her opinion. So we have a country that believes in the First Amendment. But I think he's a systemic danger to our society. And so when you ask me the question, how are people going to look back on this? They're going to look back on it and say, okay, that has happened before. The rich and the haves got stronger and stronger and stronger, and the have-nots got weaker. And the have-nots are the majority. And if you're in a democracy, the have-nots are going to have a voice. And they're going to try to tear at the halves. And Donald Trump represents that. He's the metaphor for the finger in the eye of the elites, for people that feel very dissatisfied by what's going on in the United States. Maybe they feel that way in Ireland. They certainly feel that way in the United Kingdom. And so until policy leaders, politicians get together and figure out a way to reconcile what's going on and come up with the right policies to help the have-nots. Uh, you'll have political leaders like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and people that are preying on the anger and the energy of nationalism. And it's, it's sad, actually. In a lot, a lot of ways, all of these great countries, you know, whether it's Ireland, uh, the United States, the English-speaking countries, the democracies of the West, this whole Western canon of liberalism, uh, I think that our leadership over the last 25 years has failed to provide the underpinnings of support and help to people uh, that are born poor or born middle class. You know, and, and, and I will tell you this as a kid, because my dad was an hourly worker, we didn't have that feeling 35 years ago. There was an aspirational working class in America. You know, my dad would come home and say, hey, you're going to go to college. You're going to go 
live the American dream. You see that big house, someday you're, you and your family are going to live in it, but you got to work, go to school. It'll be there for you. And it's harder now. You know, it's harder. In those areas, it's harder. The school system's been fractured. Uh, the budgets have been crushed. Uh, the spending is out of whack. Uh, there's levels of governmental corruption that I think are pervasive now because these people stay in power forever. Uh, and then when you turn the microphone towards them, you say, okay, hey, where is the 15-year plan for America, Ireland? Where's the 25-year plan for infrastructure, jobs training, re-education and education? Uh, what are we doing in the biosciences uh, to prevent the next pandemic? Wh wh where's our plan? Uh, and in the United States, we have a two-minute plan. That's to argue with each other during a cable news segment in, in, in between the commercials. And that's very, very dangerous. So, you know, and, and by the way, in the U.S., don't kid yourself, underlying the racial tension is that economic disparity. Because that economic disparity is exacerbating that racial tension. And then, of course, you've got 40 million people unemployed right now, so they've got some time on their hands. They can go out there and start protesting. Hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to briefly tell you about our sponsor for this season of The Delve, Spotlight Oral Care, which is an Irish company founded by two Irish dentists. Uh, they're a sustainable company. They're an ethical company. So long story short about me and my teeth. I had my teeth trained a couple of years ago. It made me hyper aware of oral care in general. Spotlight Oral Care really recognize that and do products specific for people and um, so i've been using their men's teeth whitening strips for a couple of weeks now i've found it fantastic i've also been using which is the which is the crown and the jewel for me uh, the sonic toothbrush which is just a phenomenal product it's got three different settings and um, it's got a two minute timer so you're, you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes i'm using their uh, sensitive toothpaste and you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes and it just switches off you're like okay i've brushed my teeth for the sufficient amount of time they've also given us a discount code of delve 25 so if you use the code delve 25 you'll get 25 percent off any spotlight oral care products on their site back to the show you mentioned the haves and the, and the have-nots there and I, th I think that's really interesting because and you mentioned bernie sanders and alexandria or cortez because america is such an individual entity that you know obviously has a reverberation throughout the rest of the world but I was, I was basically in pre-production on a documentary, on a documentary series about the US election before all this COVID stuff hit. And I met a director early on, just as a, just as a, and his perspective, I think, is a general one. And I met a director early on to make this documentary. And the documentary was called Left Right, you know, kind of a very basic top line, you know, we meet people from the left, we meet, we meet people from the right. And he said, well, look, America's not left. Like, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't left. These... You know, these like Alexandria Cortez and my team extreme in an American perspective, but in a global perspective, universal healthcare isn't an extreme notion. It's just something that's, that's there in a lot of places. Is mm -hmm. that something that feels... Yeah, you I agree with American? that. I know, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, you know, here's what I would say. I would say, you know, you, you are, you're doing a documentary called Left Right. We, we, we need another documentary. Maybe this will be your second documentary. Let's do one called Right Wrong. Because, like, let's stop focusing on left and right and let's focusing on what are the right or wrong policies. And so, you know, and I'm not picking on Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. And in some ways, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, I respect you, a very hard worker. 
and she has certain ideas that I think are workable. She has certain ideas that I think are Looney Tunes. I mean, the Green New Deal uh, is not something we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have to figure out how to curtail the carbon emissions. We're going to have to figure out a way to help the environment heal. Uh, but we're not going to do the Green New Deal. I just let you know that that's just not going to happen. There's too many political forces that would prevent that. So I'm a little bit more practical. Uh, but her comments about the need to help the indigent and the middle class and the lower middle class, I think, resonate. Uh, right or wrong, should we have a universal health care system in the United States? Well, let me tell you something that you probably know, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, Ronald Reagan in 1986 signed legislation. And obscure in the legislation, he actually created universal health care in the United States. Let me explain to you how he did it. Uh, in that legislation, it, it was one of the pieces of the legislation said, if you're sick and you go to an emergency room, the doctors and nurses in that hospital have a legal obligation to render you care. So I could walk in tonight to the, I have no insurance. I walk into the emergency room. My throat is killing me. They've got to see me. They look into my throat. They swab it. They give me the penicillin for my strep throat. Now, they'll bill me for it. I probably don't pay it, and then they have to eat that as a loss. And so the great irony is, is the great conservative Ronald Reagan, and perhaps it was by accident, he created universal medicine in the United States because people walk into the emergency room all the time. It's a last-minute step. Now, is, you know, I'm being facetious, of course. I mean, that's not the right way to have universal health. Uh, but if you ask me right or wrong, do we need a platform of universal health in the United States, we do. And uh, and we don't have it perfectly created now. Governor Romney was a Republican. He tried to create it in uh, Massachusetts when he was the governor there. He created something called Romney Care. That's worked really well in Massachusetts. 99% of the state is covered. They have a Republican governor right now, uh, Charlie Baker. He always compliments Governor Romney for the prescience of setting up the plan in a way that was fair for that state. You know, if Governor Romney became president, what he would have said about Obamacare is that it's a great idea because it had lots of elements of the DNA of Romney care, but he would wanted it to have been a little bit more Swiss army knife like, meaning it, not a one size fits all for the whole nation, but different states and different cities and urban places would have different levels and tiers of care pursuing to the interaction with their state and local government. So I'm, I'm for that, I'm a Republican, but I think the time has come for that. I think that the world has changed so rapidly. If you're in a pandemic with the specter of more pandemics to come, well, guess what? You could have the Cadillac Rolls-Royce healthcare service, but the indigent person that doesn't have it is the one that infects you and takes you lights out anyway meaning you have to have a safety net of protection for everybody in order to protect everybody. And I think that's the great irony of our lives. Uh, you know, we think about this maybe somewhat from a level of social Darwinism, but if we thought more clearly about the collective nature of our states, uh, we would be way better off. I don't personally want to live, and I've said this to my friends on the left, I do not want to live in a Bob Wired security compound in a McMansion 
uh, driving a Rolls Royce, wearing a Rolex, while my fellow neighbors are suffering and struggling. I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, flip side, though, I, I don't want to create a society that doesn't have unlimited upside for people. You know, someone like uh, Jeff Bezos that's creating all that value for people and, and mechanize that whole system. I have no problem with him having a preponderant amount of wealth. Uh, but I am worried about the unevenness of opportunity. So if you said to me, should we have equal outcomes? No. But is it incumbent upon us from right or wrong to create a greater and broader platform of equal opportunity? Absolutely. We have to do that. We have to get our politicians to cut out the bashing of each other and try to come up with ways to do that that are effective and uh, affordable and efficient. Because you're basically you're talking about balance and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons probably, you know, why Alexandria Cortez or Bernie Sanders are because they're the yin to the yang, right? They, they help give you that balance, but you'd probably no need them on the right to meet somewhere. I need them on the, on the far I, left. I, I, I respect both of them. They're very hard workers. I don't agree with them on everything, but they're very, very hard workers. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is right about the crony nature of capitalism. He's right about the feeding trough at the top. Look at what's going on right now. The COVID-19 thing comes in. The Fed does what? Jams down the rates. The markets go down, the Fed jams down the rates, the markets go back up, the rich people own the market, the rich got richer again. You see what I mean? Uh, Bernie Sanders is right. There's a level of crony capitalism in the system. The government is feathering the bed of their donor class that's writing the checks to the politicians, and the politicians are responding by using governmental money to prop up the donor class. I, 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 you know, I, by the way, Truth be told, I've benefited from that. I'm on Wall Street. I own a lot of assets. My assets have gone up. I don't want to keep you uh, too much longer. Just one or, one or two things I want to get to before I let you go, Anthony. I appreciate your time. Uh, I can only imagine how busy you are. First of all, you mentioned Mitt Romney a few times there. Lord knows where the, the news cycle is going to be at when this goes out in a week's time. But are you surprised mm -hmm. about at all about how Mitt Romney has stood up or how, how Mitt Romney has acted in the past couple of weeks and a few months back as well, but in the past couple of weeks in particular, because you've worked with him before. Well, I'm definitely not surprised. You know, when he voted to convict the president of the United States based on the evidence, uh, I think Governor Romney at 73, 72, 73, I think his attitude is, I'm doing this for my grandkids. I want my grandkids to remember me and what my legacy should be, right? So we're talking about left and right. He's more about right or wrong. And so, you know, somebody like Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell or these other guys, they've decided, hey, I'm in for the full equivocation for power and personal power preservation. You know, Governor Romney's like, you know, I could care less. I'm going to tell you what I exactly think. And so there's a great schism in the Republican Party right now in the United States. It's worse than the schism between Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford uh, back in 19. 76. And so what will happen to this party after Trump is gone uh, will be a fascinating, it'll be a fascinating discussion because we're going to need to rebuild the party. We're going to need to have a strong party. He's, he's hurt the party in almost incalculable ways. And, and you've got this level of subservience to him, which I find uh, lacks courage and it lacks uh, integrity. And I think it's going to be a rueful day 
when all of those people have to answer for their willing supplication to Donald Trump. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to try to help the guy. That was me. And that was John Kelly. Okay, I'm going to try to help the guy. I'm an American. I'm a patriot. I love my country. Let me try to help the guy. Okay, wait a minute. This guy can't be helped. This guy's crazy. And and by the way, I don't know if you caught this in my interview with John Kelly. There was sadness there. I mean, it's not anger. I'm not angry about it. I There's a sadness. I mean, come on. This is our country. Uh, he's a beacon of hope for uh, people, uh, at least the country is. Lincoln called it the last best hope for mankind. Uh, it's a multi-ethnically diverse country. A lot of people over the years have looked up to us. It's uh, My grandparents certainly did. They left Italy to come here to try to find a better life for themselves, which they did find a better life. And they certainly made a great life for me. But uh, this guy is uh, antithetical to that, you know. And, and so I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Hopefully we can beat him. Uh, I don't think he's uh, going to win. But let me tell you something about Trump. You have to punch him through the ropes. You know, you're, you're not going to, you know, if you're, oh, you know, the polls are up right now for Joe Biden. He's going to beat Trump. You don't know Trump. You don't know what he's capable of. You don't know what he's like. I was with him during the Access Hollywood situation. Our flash polling after that came out, it came out on Friday, October 7th, the 8th, 9th, and 10th, the flash polling, he was down 13%. Uh, and he won the election 28 days later. So, you know, you can't look at the polling now and say, well, he's down 14, down 10, down 7. He's going to lose. He may not lose. You got to punch this guy through the ropes. He's a systemic danger to the West. Final question, Anthony. Um what would an, what would another Donald Trump term mean? What would eight years of Donald Trump mean? Because we're seeing two of his kids, Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr., being mentioned as possible Republican nominees mm-hmm. in yeah. in twenty twenty four. Do you think that's what happens, and it just becomes this really messed up dynasty? Or, well, I you know, look. I mean, listen. Anything is possible in America, as we both know. So if he wins, he will definitely try to groom his children for that job. And I think they both seem pretty open in terms of what their political ambitions are. Uh, but listen, I mean, it's a, you know, a lot has to happen. You know, I think it'll be dark for America though. I think it'll be dark for the world. It, it, uh, 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 Trump is, doesn't have the human grace. You know, there's something about leadership where really, really good leaders can transcend their atavistic human nature and they can transcend it and they can become more sublime. They can have more grace. And, uh, you know, Churchill once said that the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly. But here's Donald Trump, you know, making fun of people, He's saying that the 75-year-old man is shoved to the ground, head bleeding. He's saying that he made it up and it was a a pre-staged event and he fell. I mean, but there's no evidence of that. If you look at the tape, it's obviously ridiculous that someone would even say that. That's that whole misinformation campaign. And so when you think about it from that perspective, you just have to hope, you know, uh, in Hollywood movies, it is rare that the anti-hero wins. And it is very rare that the bully in America wins. The, the 
the bully is a countercultural thing in America. And so the bully won the election in 2016 and we let him do it. I'm to be blamed for that as well as other people that supported him. But we have to, after three and a half years of data and his record, we have to hope that we can beat the bully. And I'm hoping that that's the case because America really doesn't like bullies. So we'll, we'll have to, to see. Will you go to Pennsylvania and Michigan and um, Wisconsin? 100%. For, for Joe Boyd? Will, you obviously have an 100%. Interest. Yeah, no, I, my family's from Pennsylvania. I will be campaigning in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, possibly Minnesota. Uh, I will go to those areas where the people look like me, they act like me, they sound like me. And I'll try to explain to them in the best way possible what a danger this person represents to their society and how he has to be expunged from the society as its political leader so that we can figure out a way to heal our society and to continue the American progress. This is not a perfect country. This is not a country that hasn't had an original sin. Of course, it had the original sin of slavery. It's a country that's had lots of different issues. But it is a country of progress, and it is a country that has advanced human civilization by and large. This is a recession in that, his presidency and how he represents himself and America. And I'm hoping that we can convince people that whatever they think, you know, this is a culture war, Michael. They're worried. You know, they see him as the finger in the dike uh, between them and the latte-drinking hordes of transvestites that are going to come over the dam and run their government and change their culture. You see what I mean? And uh, we have to convince them that that's BS, that's not going to happen, and that there's a pluralistic society and there's enough freedom in the society for everyone. So I'm certainly going to try to do that. Anthony, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate it.